good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition by the Saints Preservers, as my grandmother used to say, live from the Land of Enchantment in northern New Mexico. Tonight we're going to be doing something interesting because there have been new developments in obviously one of the stories that we have been following, which is the moon. And believe me, it is a major new set of developments following a series of developments over the last several weeks. Um, I had noticed several months ago a very peculiar pattern, and that is that all the major governments, the three major governments of planet Earth, namely the United States, the former Soviet Union, Russia, and China, have been able to land uh, both human spacecraft, that's the uh, Apollo program, and unmanned robotic spacecraft, that's the former Soviet and current Chinese space programs, successfully, repeatedly, a number of times in several different places on the moon. Um, when the Soviets realized that they could not beat us at Apollo, as you may or may not remember, they tried in uh, 1969 to send Luna 15 to the moon to scoop up a sample and race back to Earth and basically deliver a sample of lunar material to Soviet laboratories before the Apollo astronauts got home. And of course, they didn't make it because the, uh, the Luna 15 spacecraft just before the Apollo uh, 11 spacecraft landed, when they when the Russians tried to land it, it crashed. So apart from certain major three-nation uh, issues, I mean, NASA had unmanned spacecraft failures as well, the, 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 the space program going to the moon of the big three has been extraordinarily successful, including... Uh, NASA being able to send, you know, um, astronauts to and from the lunar surface without a single fatality. Now, that's not counting the uh, uh, fellows that, that died on the pad in 67 or the spacecraft that uh, uh, were not used at the end of the Apollo program. Since then, there was this long, very, very lengthy hiatus where nobody, no nation, certainly no private group because the technology didn't exist, um, tried to send anything to the moon, even though it's our nearest celestial body. And then a few years ago, we began, we meaning the big three, to send spacecraft back to the moon into lunar orbit. And then uh, there were great discussions about sending uh, unmanned spacecraft uh, back down to the surface of the moon. Um, the NASA people have pre pre preferred to remain in lunar orbit, the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a big unmanned robot, has been orbiting the moon now since 2009. The only other spacecraft which was launched by the Ames Research Center called La Crosse, uh, it was aimed for a collision by a two-spacecraft ensemble to crash into the south pole of the moon, very large area, and the second spacecraft photographed the impact of the first, did spectroscopy, learned about uh, elemental composition and molecular composition from the dust and volatiles that were spewed up by the uh, impacting explosion of the uh, Centaur rocket. But NASA has not tried to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon since the Surveyor days, which was back in the uh, uh, mid to late 60s. The Chinese, beginning in 2013, tried their first unmanned lander, Chang-3, uh, on the front side of the moon, on the near side, the side that always faces the Earth. And then they tried another landing um uh, actually two landings on the far side, and those have all been successful. 
the Russians have not tried an unmanned landing since the 70s. The U.S. next unmanned landing is supposed to be a, a mission called Viper, which has been delayed at least a couple of times. And um, the other potential landings have been all by outside agencies and or governments. The Israelis collaborated with a nonprofit and spent about a hundred million dollars on a mission to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon a couple, three years ago. It crashed. Um, the Japanese uh, tried a few days ago, literally on my birthday, to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon, complete with a uh, two little rovers, one from Japan and one from the United Arab Emirates, and it crashed. And I'm probably forgetting uh, something else. Oh, I, I think the Indians, you know, the Indian government tried to land at the South Pole uh, a couple years ago, and they crashed. And the two perspective unmanned landings that are kind of in the queue have been suddenly delayed with no obvious reasons given. So we will be discussing that uh, this evening with uh, our panelists because we have a very interesting panel. So before we go much further, um, let me kind of introduce who our panelists are. We have Robert Morningstar with us tonight. Robert is a uh, civilian intelligence analyst. He's an investigative journalist. He's also a psychotherapist and he currently lives in New York City. He does a tremendous amount of uh, work with computers. He's a private pilot. He's an expert in uh, Chinese language history and martial arts. And he's done all kinds of interesting things. In fact, he's a publisher editor of the UFO Spotlight and the UFO Digest. And he currently has his own radio show on Revolution Radio. And I'm sure he will tell me what the name of it is as soon as I bring him on, which is now. Robert, welcome to the other side of midnight. Anyway, thank you for having me on the program. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about the moon and Mars, and I've seen some of the items on the menu. And uh, yes, it's a really uh, fantastic time in lunar exploration and terrestrial exploration by lunar entities. That's uh, my take on it. I think uh, I mentioned to wait, you. Wait, 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 back up, back up. What's that about lunar entities? Well, I believe the, the moon has been inhabited for a very long time, and that's one of the main reasons that the Apollo spy missions went there. They were all dressed up in uh, Mr. Science, uh, OG Wiz, uh, isn't science great? But they were all military spy missions uh, to, uh, to the moon. And it was because we were watching activity to and from the moon. The, from the 1950s onward, so I uh, the the cover story was a NASA you know Mr. Wizard uh, science mission, but really it was a, a, a very deep state military uh, excursion. We can talk about that later. Well, but, let's talk about it now because we're, we're going to yeah. also have Ron on, and okay. I believe Ruggiero is joining us uh, a little later on, and Tim Saunders actually from Turkey. He had a five-hour drive this morning to meet a client, but he did promise that he would try to come on uh, maybe after the first hour. So, you know, when, when you're doing Skype calls to Turkey, you're, you never know, so we, we will see. So, okay, let's go back to the idea that lunar entities have been on the moon for a long time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas who they may be and what their objectives are? Well, you know, I think you'd get a really good idea of who the U.S. and Japan thought they were. Back in 1957, they made a movie called The Mysterians, which I went to see three times. And that movie was the first one to broach the subject, not only of, of the planting of robotic machinery in the Earth, but also lunar excursions to Earth to abduct Earth women. So the abduction phenomenon was revealed in 1957, and it was kept secret here for another, what, the, uh, 1957. Actually, so the first case I know of is back in 1945 in California. Uh, was it 
Well, we, we know about the Mount Shasta stories, but... No, 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 no. This, this was an army sergeant who disappeared in the desert and they found his body later, I believe. Oh, that, that's a bit later than 45. That's uh, Richard Lave uh, Sergeant Richard Lavelle at Holloman Air Force Base. That's a really terrible story. If you want, I'll recount it. No, no, thank you. <laughs> Not right now. But do you remember? Do you remember? I thought it was interesting because back when, um, uh, oh, what's her name, um, Linda Moulton Howe was yeah. very deeply into abductions, and she, you know, wrote a book about cattle mutilations and all of that. And 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 I spent some time with her in Denver. Um, she was very much on the case of abductions. And I was uh, uh, interested that this case, this sergeant, seemed to precede by many years. I thought it was the 40s. Um, that was in the early 50s, and his name was Richard Lovett. So it was the early, but it was that's before 57. So yeah. it, it was the first one that we know of, right? Yes, but that was a, that was really secret. It was really locked up in Project Blue Book. But that's one of them. No, there have been, you know what the, honestly... This is going to blow your mind. My first uh, recorded alien abduction and uh, what do they call it? Um, the Alien Love Bite. That's a book by Eve Lorgren about how aliens come and intrude in people's love lives and change their nature, change their gender, make them fall in love with the wrong people, fall in love out of love with other people. But Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare is a classic alien abduction, except they call them fairies, Oberon and Puck and mystifying right. people, luring them. So it really goes back a, a, a much farther centuries than, uh, you know, than we in modern times are willing to admit. But the, um, the other problem is that while they talk about animal mutilations, there are human abductions and human mutilations that show exactly the same kind. Well, this was why I was intrigued with this story out of Holloman, because it had to do with mutilation. Yeah, it did. You know, human well, mutilation, obviously yeah. you can't mutilate a human unless you abduct them. So that was one yeah. of the cases that Linda was working on. And I was fascinated by how early it was, which I thought it was right. the 40s. It turns out to be early 50s, but that's the yes. same kind of cultural era. Right, exactly. Uh, but since you mentioned Linda, I just want to mention my first item. Linda Moulton Howe, Jim Mars, and I, and a couple of other people are in a movie oh. by uh, made Prism Prism Pictures, Prism Productions. Okay. And it's by Sabella Claire. It's item number one. You can see it for free. And it's in a series called ETs Among Us. And this one is called UFOs, the CIA and the assassination of John F. Kennedy, or JFK. Oh, I, and, oh, I, I see. Um, what's your name? Uh, Sybilla is the, the executive producer. Yeah, Sybilla is a, she's an excellent filmmaker. The film is going to be shown at the Paris Film Festival and in the Toronto International Women's Film Festival uh, next month. Well, she did, she did a film with me many, 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 many months ago, and this yep. may be the one that I'm in. No, you're not in this one. You're in the one about the Alaska Pyramid. And I oh, posted okay, that. Okay. The last show that we did, I posted it as a surprise for you. So people uh, should be able to backtrack uh, to the last live show that we did. And it's in there. It's uh, the Alaska Pyramid is the one. Uh, she okay. said you were excellent. And we were talking about it, so I put it on the show that night. Well, this one is about John F. Kennedy's experiences with UFOs going back to World War II when he was stationed in Guadalcanal. And I found out that the people of Guadalcanal have been harassed and killed and abducted by something they called the dragonfish. These brilliant lights that would come out of the sea and go into the highlands, the mountains of Guadalcanal, or go from the mountains down into the sea. And fishermen who went there exploring, trying to figure out what the dragonfish was uh, were often burned, sometimes killed, and sometimes just didn't come back. So I believe that uh, President Kennedy being on a spy boat, the PT boats were not attack craft. They were really stealth spy uh, craft in that region trying to locate what was called the Tokyo Express. This was a, a fleet of uh, ships 
that would come under guard with uh, logistic uh, support for the Japanese troops that were island hopping in the South Pacific. So I believe that President Kennedy uh, being uh, astute and a good observer and knowing the people of Guadalcanal must have heard or could have heard about the dragonfish, may have been warned about venturing into its uh, habitat, and that the curiosity about UFOs in JFK may have gone to back to personal experiences in Guadalcanal in World War II. Then he was briefed in 1947, two days after the Roswell crash. He was on an airplane from Boston to, uh, to Washington, and he was briefed by a staff member of the Secretary of the Air Force, whose name was Stuart Symington. Years later, I met the governor of Arizona, who was uh, in, in office when the Phoenix Lights went by. I met him in Washington, and his name was Fife Symington. He was also a U.S. Air Force veteran. And I asked him if he was the son of Stuart Symington. He said, no, he was my uncle. But the important thing about Five Symington's uh, account, personal account to me, he saw it and he said, Robert, you know how wide a New York Times is, right? I said, you're, you're from New York. I said, sure, it's really wide. He says, well, Robert, if you took the New York Times and stretched it out, both pages, put it over your head, it, the, the Phoenix spacecraft was wider than the New York Times held at arm's length above your head. Oh, it was a couple of miles across. Yes, exactly, exactly. So to get back to the the film, President Kennedy, throughout his time in the Congress and in the Senate, was demanding information about the UFO or flying saucers, as they called them in the 1950s. He was also part of uh, NICAP. He was uh, one of the contacts for... um, Major Kehoe and uh, NICAP. And that was the Navy group that was trying to get disclosure way back in mid-1950s because the Navy has been trying to tell the people the truth about UFOs since, since their discovery. And it was a turf war. It was a turf war between Army Air Force. It was a turf war between Army Air Force, which was split into Army and Air Force in 1947 at the time that the deep state was uh, created. Well, that was the whole Truman signing yeah, that of, of Truman. the... And to, in order to keep secret, the UFO crashes that happened at Roswell, at Kingman, Arizona, and most importantly in Aztec, Arizona, March 15th of 1948. I like to tell people, every item, your computer items on your desk right now, and the little door that pops open with this DVD or the CD-ROM, all of that is described in the report on the recovery of the Aztec. Yeah, wasn't it a guy named William Bill something or other who wrote that book? Oh, the researcher. Oh, oh, that was... UFO Crash at Aztec was the name of the book. Yes, right. Uh, And I talked to him several times, even though I was supposedly not doing UFOs. There was, at that time, I think there was, uh, Frank Edwards was around, and there was uh, Gray Baker. What was his name, William? No, it wasn't William, but, you know, I'll, I'll look it up in a little while. The important thing about that is that that crash was witnessed by a lot of people, including oil prospectors. And one of the prospectors' name was Silas Newton. I remember he, that. Right. Well, Newton came out publicly saying that he'd seen it and that it had crashed and the Army recovered it. And I have uh, I have documents, uh, MJ-12 documents, that say that the, F- the CIA went after him really big time. And they framed him uh, for fraud and uh, deceiving investors because he claimed that he had developed technology to detect oil underground. So they used that uh, in order to uh, bring him to trial in, in a kangaroo court, and they convicted him, and that's how they silenced him. And they, they, The item, the document that I have from uh, Majestic Documents, I recommend that light site to anyone who wants to know hmm. about documents. We are a far afield of the moon, Robert. Well... I want to uh, go back to lunar entities. Okay, lunar entities. Okay, if there's somebody hostile... Mm-hmm. and alien on the moon. Mm-hmm. Why did they let Apollo land? Well, not because, once, not twice, 
but six times. Because certain countries in on this planet, not all of them, have contact with them and they have negotiated landing rights. I've told you that I consider the existence of something called LGA, the same call letters as LaGuardia Airport. But LGA for me stands for Lunar Governing Authority. And without their permission, you cannot land on the moon just now, as an aircraft. Do we have do we have any evidence or documentation? Well, the evidence we have of the alien assistance for us to get to the moon comes from the German scientists, Hermann Oberth, and a couple of others who said Hi, we Keith, have... can you hear me? Yeah, I, I think that's oh, Ron. That's Ron, yeah. Yeah. So yes, that's part of it. Okay, we'll get you in a minute, Ron. Go ahead, Ron. Okay. I'll turn it out. Let me get my headset. Okay. <laughs> Ron also said we'd had help. And so I take that at uh, face value. But in 1959... You can't, Robert, Robert, stop. You can't take anything of this at face value. Give me a break. Gosh. Give you a break. There's You're no taking, such thing as face value ET evidence of interactions. If you I got it, word, show it to me. I believe the word. Um, I don't believe anybody. Well, I know that's because you're a skeptic, but you're willing to I'm not a skeptic. I'm a scientist. I go by evidence. Just show me evidence. Well, don't, I had. Don't show me uh, people I, who claim. Show me well, evidence. Okay, just silence for a moment. In 1959, Jesse Wilson, an astronomer in New Jersey, was observing the moon, and he saw 34 UFOs rising up from the Taurus Little Valley, and he took photographs. I heard about them in 1959 because it was announced on the radio. And my friend and I waited for days to see them on television. They never emerged. But 45 Well, 59 was, was the dark ages of ufology after the Robertson sure. panel in 54 and the CIA basically screwing with everybody. That's right. And they're, and they're still doing it. So this is just a big... Well, they're trying pony. to. They're not Look, being very successful. They painted themselves into a corner with 75 years of lying, and now they know, don't know how to extricate themselves from it. And they're trying to start a new era of ufology by calling it UAP. We can, about can, can we stay on topic, please? Well, okay. The moon. You have said Wilson, lunar Jesse, entities. Jesse Wilson took photographs of 34 craft rising from the moon's surface. And almost 50 years later, I found the photograph in secret documents that were in Blue Book. I, I acquired the Blue Book archives from the United States Air Force. And as I went through there, I found Jesse Wilson's photograph. So those were the Mysterians. They've been coming and going. They've had bases. They have underground bases on the moon. You and say all this like it's proven. It's not. <laughs> And I go back to the first premise in war, do not let the enemy get the high ground. So again, back to why were we allowed to land on the moon if there's somebody because already there? The United States government made a secret treaty, a pact. How do you make a secret treaty with gods who could blow you away what with a switch? Gods? That's, a, that's a real trip, Richard. You think they are gods. No, I think their technology you is God-like. You just said gods, and you didn't say I'm use, I'm using it you with worship. A, just, I'm, you know, Richard, you, I, Robert, you, stop. Take a, deep, take a deep you breath. Take a deep breath. worship these guys. Take a deep breath. No, I don't. I just, you worship these guys. I am you just, I'm just, God I'm, just I'm, I'm, I'm using air. worship the technology. Robert, why are we arguing? Because you don't let a person finish a sentence. I've let you finish multiple sentences. You just have to make sense. I make a lot of sense. Claiming the moon is inhabited in without hard evidence is not scientific. Well, listen, in a couple of minutes, you're going to start talking about the dome on the moon, and I'm going to ask you, who made that? And I don't have to know because I right don't have the that? libraries at my disposal oh, yet. Oh, libraries. The libraries where? On the moon? There's no proof that there are libraries on the moon, Richard. Come on. You've been hypothesizing about libraries on the moon and secret archives and bringing uh, archives down and turning pictures from 50,000 years ago into JPEGs now. That's all BS, Richard. No, it isn't. Not at all. Yes, it is. Robert, I do not accuse you of BS. Please be respectful. 
I am going to be respectful as long as you remain respectful. I'm just asking for your evidence. You make a claim. The moon is inhabited. Show me you the evidence. A photograph. There are photographs. There are videos, especially in recent years. As a matter of fact, Bruce Sees All is a video that's on my list there. And if uh, the listeners care to listen to other people's evidence, he's got videos of UFOs coming off the moon, flying over Robert, the moon. Robert, Robert, UFOs flying around the moon does not mean they live there. It means they may be like us, visiting or using it as an observation post or a recon center. Or Richard, some... your, objection, your objection is a red herring. No, it's We've not. We've seen those things rising. There are videos of them coming out of underground uh, caverns. Again, no, it makes said... a great base. It doesn't mean they live there. The only well, reason for aliens to be on the moon or ETs, which is probably more appropriate, is for observing us. If you're, of course. If, 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 if you have a chattel civilization under observation, the last thing you want to do is let them get close and land. I don't care about negotiation. To be negotiated, <laughs> there's got to be something of equal value that both sides exchange. When you're dealing with the equivalent of Superman, you don't tug on his cape, you don't fit into the wind, and you certainly don't or can't make a deal because they have more power than you do, and deals right. even among humans with power turn out to be bad when the two sides are unequal, let alone how unequal ETs versus humans would be. Well, that's why Truman and Eisenhower had to kowtow to them because we had no power. So it wasn't a negotiation. It was an ultimatum, you're saying. It, well, of course, it was an ultimatum. Well, then that's to use proper language. Well, the ultimatum was we're here to land, we're here to settle on the earth. And Einstein and uh, Oppenheimer suggested to Truman that the best uh, course was to dr draw up a secret treaty either through the United States government or, and or the United Nations to give them settlement rights, ranging which, which rights. Which really is a, a secret capitulation, according to your statement. Yes, and their, their, uh, their excuse was that they had to bide time while we developed our technology to be able to counter them. So Einstein and Oppenheimer recommended that they develop, and this is MJ-12 was born. Two minutes. That they needed to... Um, make a deal, but to keep it secret from the world public. And then in 1954, there were two meetings between Eisenhower and this extraterrestrial entity. And in the first one, they demanded that we get rid of all nuclear weapons. And Eisenhower refused because he realized that nuclear weapons were the only defense that we had against their technology. And in the second meeting, which occurred at Kirkland Air Force Base, where the treaty was signed, Ranging rights, settlement rights, and exchange of technology, alien technology for human resources was uh, agreed to. And okay, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour, so okay. we're going to pause. My guest this morning, my first guest, my first rather argumentative guest <laughs> is Robert Morningstar. We, we do this a lot, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, I'm, I, look, I have read all these stories. I am tired of stories. I want evidence. Now, to put the record straight, I have seen contemporary videos shot by amateur astronomers from Earth, which do in fact show extraordinary aerial craft maneuvering in very strange ways around the moon. Does not mean they live there, that they are inhabitants. They, I believe, are as much visitors observing us as we are visitors and maybe visitors again and that's of course the subject of our program because in the last several years nobody except for the chinese have been able to successfully land on the moon with unmanned spacecraft all other efforts and we'll get into this in detail in the second half hour when tim saunders is going to join us all those efforts are going to come to naught if, in fact, maybe, just maybe, there's someone else, shall we say, occupying the moon. Here on the other side of midnight, 
My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, May 20th, to the other side of midnight. My guest this morning so far is uh, Robert Morningstar, and we're having a very lively um, debate at some level on who are occupants, who are visitors, who are aliens, who are ETs, and what have they been doing with Earth for a very long time. And again, if, as Charles Ford said, we are property, my question, Robert, is how come anybody let their property, their cattle, their uh, chattels do such extraordinary things as land on their own satellite, not once, not twice, but six times, and do nothing to uh, intercept what their mission was, which I think was in part to bring back some artifacts that were left by whoever had been on the moon a long time previous. Well, first of all, I don't think that we are anyone's chattel. And humans have an instinct for independence and free thinking and curiosity. So curiosity, I think, is a a prime directive. And it got us to the moon because we needed to find out what was going on on the surface of the moon. And, of course, in order to find that out, we had to send human eyeballs up there. Robotics are, are not enough. You have to see it with the human eyes and the human brain and analyzing. So that was the main reason. Uh, There is one group of extraterrestrials that looks upon us as chattel, and there's another group that looks upon us as brothers and and siblings. So to make a long story short, one group is described as being reptilian and exploitative, and the other one is described as the tall whites, who are more human-like and somewhat more humane, but very tough, very tough uh, individuals. So they traded off a base on Earth. We, There are aliens living on Earth at S4, at Area 51. And they've been there since the 1950s. So those are, quote-unquote, the good guys, the white hats, the tall So you're hats. saying we're basically involved in some kind of war and we've got allies and enemies. Out there. Yes, if, if you look at the issue, if you watch the video uh, of the um, UFO, CIA, and the JFK assassination, uh, 
Linda Moulton Howell quotes Jim Mars saying that World War II was an intergalactic war, an extraterrestrial war fought with human bodies. And I think that's that's very telling and very accurate. As a matter of fact, when you read um, well, it, 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 when, when you when, when you read Billy Mitchell, you know mm-hmm. the the um, uh, Swiss farmer. The one-armed Swiss farmer who had all those Bill Myers, the bomber pilot. Yeah, yeah, but Billy yeah. Myers. What, what yeah. I, what I'm intrigued with is when I got the original German notes and had them translated, the Nazi overtones of his mm-hmm. exchanges with the Pleiadians were overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I can put Linda's comment in context that mm-hmm. yes. There are folks out there that basically taught the Nazis everything they thought they right. knew. Yeah, now those are not the tall whites, the Pleiadians. I didn't say Mother that. Group. I said No, I know, but I'm saying, agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. There's one disturbing thing about the Billy Meyer contact, and that's the name Only of the Pleiadians. Only one? Well, the main one for me. Is all those it, Egyptian references, which are crap. No, no, no. The name, the name given to him by the uh, pilot of the UFO, the first one that he met. Said, well, there were, there were several. There were Semyasi and Semyasi. Well, and you know who Semyasa is? Yeah, it's all part of Egyptian mythology, supposedly. No, it's not Egyptian. It's not Egyptian. Semyasa no, is not Sumerian. Egyptian. Sumerian. No, Semyasa is the name of the fallen angel, the one of the Watchers who organized the rebellion of the Watchers against God. And they are the ones that went in onto women and hybridized, engineered the Nephilim. Semiyaza and Aza. Hang on, Ron, Ron, let me do this properly. Let me introduce this mysterious voice out of the wilderness. Ron Gerbron is with us. Um, Let me turn up your gain just a bit because you and Robert are not equal in gain. And uh, he is our resident generalist. Tonight, he's going to talk a bit about Mars with some interesting new images. So, Robert, go right ahead. Uh, Ron, Ron, go right ahead. Yeah, I can't avoid a good argument. No, 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 I'm not going to step, step in, but the uh, Semyazi, that's... You already have. Come on. You already have. It's a small point. If you're going to say that you have a credentialed answer for yes, something, I do. then, you know, don't be scared of it. I mean, that's that's all. The, the aliens you interrupted me as I was going to tell you who Semiyaza is and remains. Semiyaza. OK, as long as you don't think she's an Egyptian. Go ahead. Yeah, I didn't say he was Egyptian. Richard said he was Egyptian. It's not I'm a he, it's a I she. And the photograph and the photograph of Semiyaza who, who Meyer published in his book, turned out to be some model from, I think, yeah. Las Vegas. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but the let's name, not get into the pronouns of Sumerians. Yeah, okay. My <laughs> point is the name and it's Go ahead, right. Robert. Sorry. Semiyaza and Azazel were the two principal fallen angels of the Watchers who organized the rebellion, who decided to take women and create a, a hybrid angelic human race and created the giants, the Nephilim. And that is told in both versions of the Book of Enoch, the Slavonian and the Ethiopian. And that's what makes me suspicious of this particular group that contacted Billy Meyer. Yeah, the so-called Pleiadians. The so-called Pleiadians. uh, Because they're Nazis through and through. That's right. That's right. That's why Jim Mars wrote the book, The Fourth Reich, because apparently the Nazis had made contact with a certain race that downloaded uh, technology, actually gave them an intact craft, the Haunabu. Well, this goes back to your comment about Linda, because I really can see her perspective that World War II was kind of like a prologue, like an opening act to the real war we're still immersed in, which I think is galactic, and we're a pawn on one side. Yes, pawn. Bishop, Rook, it's a chess game. I was going to quote... Um, but we are not free agents, and if someone allowed us to land on the moon, my point tonight, if I can kind of return to the theme of what we're going to talk about, nobody yeah. else is being allowed to land on the moon. That's my because, point. Because Russia, China, and the United States are the only countries that have made contact with the, these uh, race. 
and only ones that have negotiated landing rights. Or, or, or the Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans know the secret of landing safely on the moon, which mainly is don't hit the dome. Yeah. And everybody else is kept in the dark, so they're assuming it's a naked, airless little world, and they send their little robotic, computer-driven spacecraft down, and the last one crashed, you know, like uh, 30, 40 feet above the surface, the Japanese claim, but they claim it under very bizarre circumstances because they're the guys with the technology that can land on the moon automatically, like the Chinese, like... All the others, all the technology is the same. Nobody has an advantage in this technology anymore. Back in the 70s or 60s, yes, not now. But what's mm -hmm. interesting is that the guys that are not in the club, they don't make it, only the big three. Russia, yeah. China, and us have been allowed, mm -hmm. maybe, to land on the moon, or we know enough to know how to avoid the glass on the way down. I have another theory. That the I have facts. I have data, well, not theory. Yours I'm is a tired theory. of theory. Yours is theory. No, There's it's no, not. What you just, no Richard, what you just no, said was theory. No it's well that's not what it's based on. Can you please down. stop talking over me? Gosh. When I'm on sentence. your show, I will follow your lead. When you're on my okay. show, please follow mine. Thank okay. you. So my point is, ring bell. my my point is that between these two theories that we're being shot down, or the private guys are being shot down, and the big guys mm -hmm. are being allowed, or the big guys know what's there and the hazards to avoid on the way down, which is all the damn glass, and the private guys are not allowed in and they haven't fought beyond the end of the envelope, so they have no idea there's an impediment. Now, they may be beginning to, because two private groups with autonomous robotic landers have suddenly announced they're postponing their efforts to land. Maybe they figured out there's an unknown environmental factor that they need to research before their plans can succeed. That's kind of like the foundation of our conversation tonight. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's important is because future man missions, like the uh, like if you go to my items in Radio with Pictures, let me tell everybody who's new, because we have a lot of new listeners, how to get there. You go to the other side of midnight.com, you click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, uh, let me read it here, why have all private efforts to soft land robots on the moon and Mars failed? Click on that banner, that will take you to the guest page. Click on my name under the guest page banner, and that will take you to my items. Number one, NASA announced yesterday that they have picked Blue Origin together with Lockheed, um, Honey, uh, B Robotics and the Draper Labs, which is out of MIT, to build a duplicate lander system in addition to SpaceX, which was selected last year to build a lander for the Artemis program. And they laid out in a two-hour uh, presentation at NASA headquarters with Bill Nelson, who's the current head of NASA, the administrator, their plans for the Blue Origin lander, and they're talking about many test flights in the next few years before they submit the lander with humans to land on the moon. My question is, if they don't know what's waiting for them, will their landings in preparation for testing their lander Will they come up a cropper like the current unmanned landings that are not in the club? I doubt that it's going to be successful if they're only giving it one year to prepare this lander. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. No. No, I, I didn't say it. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. This but, is odd to but, me. But they're not. The, the, the Blue Origin lander is supposed to be targeted for 2029. 
and the incredibly snail pace of the Artemis program, which will only be the fifth landing, a fifth mission of Artemis, and only the third landing in 2029. So, well, and if, which, weren't they saying they were going to go in 2024? That's, that's SpaceX. That's, that's Elon Musk. And Elon Musk is going to do all his testing of the Starship in Earth orbit. And I don't know whether he plans any unmanned tests on the moon. So when is the Artemis land, first Artemis landing supposed to be made? 2025. Because they have no money. I said this to a friend of mine last night. Uh, he said, what? I said, yeah, they're being starved to death. They're talking. Nelson announced yesterday at this press conference, one Artemis landing per year. And the astronauts initially are only going to stay two or three days, just like Apollo, and then come home. So we're basically trying to do the moon on the cheap because Congress mm -hmm. thinks that other things have much higher priority. And frankly, what that means is it's going to be up to Musk and the Starship and that technology, which is very important because you need other players in the game in order to keep the game honest. <clears throat> then the mm -hmm. question comes down to, is Musk, given that he's part of Artemis, with the lander for the Artemis program, if he lands, if he sends his own astronauts to the moon separately and tries to land separately, will he be successful? That's one of the key questions. Yes, it is. I'd like to go uh, back Richard? to you. Uh, Wait, to I'm hearing. Okay. Is that Ron? Yeah, Ron wants to say yeah. something. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about protocols because I was thinking of a friend of mine I used to know he was working under grant money on some it was biological stuff but he was uh, I kept asking him every time I saw him he said Mark uh, you finished with that genome yet and he goes nope not even close and that, that was his standard answer because as soon as he was done the project would stop the grant money would stop and that's exactly what Artemis is doing they're trying to string it out so they can keep feeding them some grant money as far as the Elon doing part of something for them, that's wait, the Wait, Japanese. wait, wait, Ron, that makes no sense. Let me finish and that, I'll be done. It, because I'm it makes trying, no I'm sense. Stop, to... stop, stop spreading misinformation. That's I not, can't help it. That's it's not true. No, it's not. The contracts do not end when they develop the successful lander. The con they have to develop future landers. They have to develop... I didn't say it did. You just said they were drawing it out to draw out the money. Every year they have to go before and justify what they're doing. And so the less work they can get done during a given track period, the more the money is useful to them. And you just already said they're underfunded. But the cap to the thing is because you, you were about to step off a, a diving board on this bit with Elon Musk making something relative to their project. That's the Japanese Zaibatsu concept. It's like if you bought a tape recorder back in the 70s, you didn't know who actually put it together. You knew whose brand name was on the outside. They would trade work with each other because they, one would have a factory optimized to do a certain thing, and the other guys would use it. They do it with their cars, too. Ron, we can, don't can, normally can, do that can, can in the I U.S. Be, I, I'm going to correct the record because this has nothing to do with Japan. SpaceX is the prime contractor to NASA. I didn't. SpaceX is the prime contractor to NASA for the lander part of the Artemis landing on the moon series of missions being planned. There are NASA, there are NASA overseers and managers throughout that contract. They aren't just buying mm -hmm. a pig in a poke. They're not saying to to uh, Musk, okay, give us a lander, and then they accept it, you know, with a bright shiny ribbon and a key. They are intimately involved. NASA is in building the lander. It will there will be no unknown parts, no unknown suppliers, no unknown anything. It will be as thoroughly NASA overseen as the Blue Origins contract or. Lockheed Martin and the others during Apollo and Boeing and North American and all that. They're just kind of changing the labels, but anything to qualify for a human spaceflight rating goes through an extraordinary layered bureaucratic checking process at NASA, which is why, you know, Starship can be created 
by Musk for 45 times less money than NASA has put into Artemis so far. All true. I I wasn't arguing with any of that. Well, I'm not quite sure why you brought the Japanese in because they have nothing to do with because they are a real world, not aliens, not not from videos on YouTube. They are a real world (laughs) example of an industrial complex which has various different independent commercial suppliers that will trade parts of projects across the street in order to get the work done more efficiently. Yeah, but we do that it's here. It's part all of their the, structure. It's we, not part of ours. Yes, it is. for NASA. Yeah, yes, it is. Except for NASA. Well, we're only Where? talking about NASA. <laughs> all right? So, apples and oranges. Well, gosh. So let me let me yeah, go I mean, let me let me look let me let me move this conversation which is very um, bumpy into the next level. If you look at my item number two, the Chinese after Musk tried to launch his Starship on its first test flight, which had a rather spectacular explosive ending. Twenty. Richard, that's not item number two. You, you, that's item number two is tornadoes. You must mean something you have to else. Re, have to refresh. Number five. Refresh. Okay. It's number two. All right. I'm looking at it. Okay. Anyway, the Chinese published very curiously a frame-by-frame analysis of Musk's first rather spectacular successful-slash-unsuccessful Starship launch. And they came to some very interesting conclusions. Why have I put that as number two? Because as Nelson said yesterday, we are in a space race with the Chinese. And we are. But the Mm -hmm. stakes are so much higher than the space race with the Soviets, i.e. the Russians, because the Mm -hmm. stakes now are for all the technology waiting from ETs on the moon for the nation to arrive first and begin to find it, as well as the libraries. And it was very interesting that Nelson made a really strong point that in this kind of loose race between us and China, Robert, he yep. said, he said, we have to be first. Now, given that both, you know, nation states have comparable technology, given that they have comparable training and technical background and, and uh, managerial expertise and all that, and the Chinese have been very successful with their current unmanned landings, I'm kind of intrigued why he's really upset if the Chinese want to land on the moon first, because we've already done that historically. No matter what the Chinese do, they can never undo historically our precedents. So then the question arises, if the Chinese do land and they do identify alien technology, architecture, libraries, working machines, whatever, will they allow us to land? And is that what Nelson, in a very Emily Dickinson fashion, is really trying to say? Because otherwise, who cares whether the Chinese land on the moon now ahead of us because we're opening a whole new frontier, which is the South Pole. Yeah. Why well, is that a new frontier? I would just hold on a second. I would just like to say, as far as yeah. the frame by frame analysis of the Starship failure, I noticed that seven of those uh, rockets in in the uh, in the launch vehicle failed on the way up. So in, it started to in, out of thirty three, seven did not ignite. Yes. Yes. And, and and I have a close up showing which I was debating whether to put up as the yeah. image for number two or not. Do we know, do you know why those seven engines uh were not working on the way up? You know what my instinct is? I don't want time. I want evidence. Interference. Interference. Something well it could be a malfunction, but Seven out of uh, the, the whole circumference and all of them to, to fail in sequence to create asymmetrical thrust, which would create incredible vibration, which ultimately destroyed it. Okay, according but, to the Chinese. Do you, remember, do you remember the Amos 6 satellite that was on the launch pad and, and Musk was supposed to send that up? 
and a UFO went by, and Badoom, the satellite blew up. Well, the whole spacecraft blew up, the rocket and the and the satellite. Yeah. No, no, no. Most it was just the satellite. The rocket stood standing, and there was a fire. But a UFO went by, and that technology can interfere with electronics. All right. Let me let me go back to the Chinese. The Chinese okay. looked at the video, which everybody can look at. It's all over YouTube. And their claim was that the problem was with the vector control system, which for those people that aren't rocket nerds, you simply swivel the engines. All those engines, well, most of them, can be swiveled on the super uh, heavy booster that's launching Starship. And the fact that seven engines were dark, and you can look up the back end and see this incredible photograph of the engines lighting and the engines not. If you looked at the pad at launch, Musk and his engineers made a catastrophic uh, misanalysis of what was going to happen to the pad when they launched this monster because it had millions of pounds of thrust, something like 16 million pounds of thrust, which is larger than any rocket ever launched except for the Russian N1, which didn't work back in the 70s, um, currently you know, being tested today. And what it did, if you look at the close-up images of the launch pad in Texas, it destroyed the launch pad. It tossed concrete over a mile away from the launch pad. What happened is because Musk and his engineers, for some cockamamie reason, did not build a conventional water-doused system of, of right. sound suppression like at Cape Canaveral, mm -hmm. he tried to launch from like a three-legged stool. It's got more legs than three, but I forget how many. And the, the, the thrust, you know, 18 million, 19, what, the number varies as you'll see in a minute, uh, just tore up the concrete and the pad and threw up all that debris into the engines. I'm astonished so that it only took out seven because each of those engines has to be moved hydraulically. Well, how do you move an engine, a rocket engine, with hydraulics? It's got to be on pivots, and there are hoses carrying hydraulic fluid to the engines and if you lose hydraulic fluid, in other words, if the shrapnel from the liftoff, you know, mm -hmm. simply struck and cut those hoses, of course you lost vector control. And it probably took out the fuel lines, which is why the engines went dark. It's a huge problem that Musk, for some god-awful reason, made for himself which raises another conspiratorial point that we're going to get to when we come back. My guests this morning so far are Robert Morningstar and Ron Gerbron, and we're having what would be called a very lively conversation about evidence and agendas and players. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. 
and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.